This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The weather in Rocky Ford, Colorado last week was ideal for planting a hugely popular summer crop, cantaloupe. Under a clear blue sky with a light breeze, farmer Matthew Proctor walked slowly behind a thundering machine called a planter. His eyes rarely left the ground, watching as the machine positioned this year's crop. Every now and then, he spotted a shiny blue seed on the ground, picked it up, and put it in the hole the machine had missed. Proctor has high hopes for the 400,000 seeds he'll plant this season. In 90 days, hopefully we'll have a full vine crop that you, where you're walking right now, you'd have to pick your feet up to about your knees to walk through, and you'd be stumbling all over uh, melons everywhere out in the field. But Proctor, who owns Proctor Produce in Rocky Ford, this is in southeastern Colorado, says there's a lot to worry about between now and harvest time. There's wind, hail. You know, you hold your breath when the, the big bellowing storm clouds come by, and other days you, you just work. Uh, but when you see some of those things, you you hold your breath and, and hope and, and do a little praying. Uh, we're joined now by another farmer from Colorado's cantaloupe country. Michael Hiracata is president of the Rocky Ford Growers Association. Welcome to the program. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Your region produced 4 million cantaloupe last year at roughly 4 bucks a pop, and that's about $16 million gross. But this can be risky business. What's the outlook for this year's crop? You know, right now, uh, it's... It's pretty good, you know, the, the weather is, it's clouding up right now, but I don't, not too many cantaloupe are up yet. So, you know, we, we, we won't know until we get the first cantaloupe in the box, and uh, that's about, uh, I'd say, 90 days away or somewhere, somewhere around there. The fact is, uncertainty reigns in many regards. Yes, uh, we, you know, our uh, number one factor and uh, our worry factor is the weather. Um, our produce farmers are a little bit different than, um, say, a grain farmer or a, uh, a rancher. We we want it actually want it dry, and we want to control all the uh, all the irrigation ourselves. And uh, you know, in, instead of uh, relying on the rain, and you know, sometimes uh, we're not looked at too too good by the other farmers. I see, because you are wishing for the opposite, which is not yes. so much rain and certainly not hail. I noticed yeah. the forecast uh, even for today brings the possibility of hail, but as you say, uh, it's pretty early here. Uh, does yeah. most Rocky Ford cantaloupe stay in Colorado? Does a lot make it outside the state? What, what's the market? You know, we, we do get a few out of the state. We, we uh, go up and down the front range, you know, the neighboring states, uh, Texas, Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, and um, I'm probably missing a few, but uh, the hail in the last few couple of years has really dictated that we can only supply uh, mostly Colorado because we, we're losing 30, 40 percent of our crop to hail. Oh, my goodness. And what does that do to your bottom line as a farmer? It, you, we go over the same ground. You know, we have to replant three times and uh, three or four times in some fields. And, you know, Every time we go across that field, we have to pay, you know, we pay for more seed, more diesel fuel, more um, plants, uh, more more labor to, to get the same crop. So we're basically starting out in a hole when that happens. Help me understand. And it takes a lot of, lot, of, lot of cantaloupe to fill that hole up, or watermelon. Or watermelon, because that's grown down there as well. Help me understand the multiple plantings. Is that to replace the damaged crop, or does every season bring multiple plantings? There's multiple plantings because we, we want to supply fruit for the whole season. Um, for instance, this first 
first uh, first planting, we have four plantings. The first planting will only pick for about 10 days. So we plant uh, second, third, and fourth to, in a timely fashion. When the plants get so big, then we go back in and start planting again. So we, we can supply, um, have a supply through the summer. Got it. And, and any a number of those plantings could be jeopardized by the weather. You know, we mentioned in the introduction that the seeds are bright blue. You can see an image of this at cprnews.org. Is that a natural color of the seed? No, they're actually treated with some uh, some powder to to protect them from uh, you know when we plant them, it, it it'll protect them from a little bit of the, uh, the weather they have to go through. And also, it's a, it's a primer that when the moisture does hit it, it will open up a little bit easier and sprout and uh, get get uh, growing. Fascinating. Who knew there was primer on seeds? Yeah. So how, you know, that, that's what is explained to me by the seed man. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a farmer, not a breeder. <laughs> Tell me how you know when to start planting. Is there a fixed date, or do you look at, at the environment? We really look. It's not really a fixed date. It's when we kind of look at the weather, the environment. We kind of go from, uh, you know, we talk to our, our parents and our grandparents and um, and the, the older farmers and see what they think about the freeze and uh, when it's coming. So we kind of, we, you know, we use long-term um, long-term weather forecasts. We use the far- farmer's almanac, and we use what uh, you know what some of the older farmers uh, have uh, have learned throughout the years. What do they tell you? Um, they say to kind of watch for the cottonwood leaves, and you know when that when that leaf is the size of, of a squirrel's ear, we should be in the clear. But you know they're pretty big right now, and it's supposed to get really cold this weekend. And uh, you know, it, sometimes it's just a, a guessing game. Uh, it's hard to outguess Mother Nature, and usually, usually we we don't. And she she throws a surprise at us, and we we end up, uh, um, you know, either replanting a little bit or delaying our planting, uh, try, trying to get uh, to maximize our our plantings by not losing so much uh, to freeze or bad weather. Michael Hiracotta, president of the Rocky Ford Growers Association. How long has your family been farming in Rocky Ford? We've been here for about uh, farming here since about 1915. 1915. Yes. Tell me about how your folks, or their folks, or their folks, folks uh, <laughs> came came to that part of Colorado. Uh, my great grandpa uh, Tusenuske Hirakata came from Japan to um, work on the railroads on the western coast, west coast, and then he made his way towards Denver, following the the work for on the railroad. And he heard that uh, you know this area of Colorado was written ground to Japanese people. So he came down here to farm, and then a few years later, he sent for his son, uh, Keiji, and he married my grandma, Toki Kumagai, and started the family, and we've, we've been farming here ever since. And was it always melons, or, or what? You know, there were some onions, melons, beans, um, a variety of stuff. They always grew, seemed to grow vegetables, though. Uh, you know, you see the old pictures, there's onions laying around in cantaloupe. They had a little uh, farmer's market, uh, fruit stand, I guess you could call it. And they always, you know, I remember my dad and my uncle talking about driving to Denver in the old trucks and, and sleeping underneath the trucks uh, so they can be the first ones at market or be one of the first ones at uh, the Denargo market. Ah, the Denargo market, yes. Uh, there are remnants of that even uh, today, I think. Um, yeah. So I want to note that your fellow farmer, Matthew Proctor, planted uh-huh. seeds with that contraption he sort of walked alongside. Uh-huh. But you take a different approach, is that right? You, you have transplants. Yeah, we, we use a, uh, 
a planter like that also, but we, we do uh, transplants too. We're going to try, uh, we're trying to outguess Mother Nature, like I said, this year and do transplants. And that is, uh, you know, there's a little, I call it a spade, and we place, we place the plant in that spade, and it plants it uh, about, uh, oh, you know, about two to three inches deep. So it'll, uh, it'll it's already plant, and hope after we plant those, we can't have a freeze. We need to have perf- pretty good weather for those plants. They're they're kind of delicate. Yeah, that is to say you're not planting seeds directly, but sprouted uh, little plants. Yes. yes. And uh, I know that farmers in your area rely in part on satellite technology to know where to place seed or plants. Is that right? Yes, we use um, a couple of systems. Uh, some people use it, uh, the system called AutoFarm. We use uh, the John Deere system called GreenStar. And it really, it's a really helps you keep you straight and we apply our our irrigation lines with it and then we come back and lay our plastic mulch with it and then we plant with it so everything is directly above that water line and we're we're not wasting any water to push further than center so it really helps us uh keep everything really efficient it's we're more efficient with time diesel fuel and you know we can get one job done and move to the next with a relative ease some days Fascinating. So in 2011, the cantaloupe industry was rocked by an outbreak of listeria, as you know, that killed 33 people nationwide. That outbreak was traced to a farm in Holly, Colorado, about 95 miles east of Rocky Ford. And that's, I believe, when the Rocky Ford Growers Association was founded, right? Yes, that, that, was, that was the year. Yeah. And so uh, do you impose different safety standards than were in place that were before? Yes, to be a member of our association, you have to have a food safety um, policy in place. You have to be audited, um, and it's that's the only way you can be a member. You have to follow food safety, and you know it starts with prevention and training of of ourselves and our employees, and every level on the farm gets gets trained in food safety, and we we uh, make it our uh, top priority. And, at Hericotta Farms and the Rocky Ford Growers Association. So is it that I could not call my cantaloupes Rocky Ford melons if I'm not a part of that and subject to those rigors? Well, you can't belong to the Rocky Ford Growers Association. Uh, The Rocky Ford name has been out there for a while, so it's it's pretty hard to uh, control the Rocky Ford cantaloupe name, but we can control what we do to be part of our association and get the benefits of uh, of being part of that association, which include you know training and um, mostly education and training. So, of course, planting cantaloupe is rigorous, but so is uh, harvesting it, and that is often done, I think, just by hand. Where do those workers come from, Michael? Uh, most of our workers come from Mexico. We we are in the uh, H-2A program. It's called the Adverse Wage Program. And um, we are actually working on that right now to get our laborers to come up uh, in July. It's a very, it's a good program, but it's got a lot of flaws because we have to start work so early to get it. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. And we have to pay around $11 an hour for these, these workers. But it's work that... Um, it, we're in a small community here, and there's not a lot of uh, there's not a big labor pool to pull from, and you know there's it's a seasonal job, and people people want a year round job, but these people that the men that, and women that come from Mexico are very you know they they work very hard and they want this job. They come for four months and uh, they're ready to go home. And why not use American workers? Uh, th- 
in this area, there's not very many. And some of the workers around here, um, it, it's hard work. And uh, they, they can't, some people won't last the whole day. Very, very rarely do they last more than a week because, like I said, it's, it's very hard work. But it sounds like you've tried. I've, I can't do it anymore. I, oh, yeah. I'm, 40, I'm 47, and I, I can go out and I show them what I want. But, uh, you know, when I was younger, yes. But now, you know, it, it's, it's hard. And uh, th- these guys are very tough men, and the women are tough. And it, it's, it's hard to be out there in the cold and the heat, the wind. And, uh, but they do it with a smile, and we, 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 uh, we are very appreciative of all the people that work with us. I see. You've tried yourself. I guess I mean that you tried to find American workers and that hasn't oh, yeah. really panned out. Yeah. yeah. I'll say that... We, we do hire, I'd say 40% of our workforce is American workers, uh, the local people around here. But it's, there's not just not enough people here in this little town to supply all the farmers with, uh, with, um, with work. I don't say for maybe 20 to 30% of our workforce is... Uh, is local. Is local. Uh, President yeah. Trump has talked about cutting back on immigration to this country generally to make jobs available for American workers, but it isn't clear yet exactly what position he'll take on the H-2A visas of which you speak for temporary agricultural help. Uh, briefly before we go, Michael, any hopes there? You know, I, I hope uh, immigration reform is one of his, uh, on his platform, you know, one of the, on his agenda. Uh, because you know this this country needs workers that are willing to work and do the work uh, uh, that is some people aren't willing to do in the, in America, and uh, you know I, I, I hope uh, I hope that he streamlines the H two A program and we get a get a better program to work with and um, it's not so hard but uh, you know it's a wait and see type of deal and we worked under uh, Obama and we did okay jump through some hoops and we'll just have to wait and see you know uh change where the change with the weather always hits us sometimes so we're you know we're used to change you're used to change well michael we may (laughs) check back in with you uh as that progresses and good luck with the rocky ford cantaloupes all right thank you he is michael hiracotta president of the rocky ford growers association speaking with us by phone from southeastern colorado farmers in the community are planting this year's cantaloupe crop now Let's go from farming to gardening. Our green-thumbed guru, Larry Stebbins, was on the show just last week to answer your gardening questions. One thing we didn't get to, but are going to now, is about rain barrels. What's the best way to set up a system, asks Maureen Supple of Littleton on the CPR News Facebook page. Collecting rainwater was illegal in Colorado until just last year, and when the law changed, I sat down with Patty Mason, who leads Colorado U.S. Green Building Council. Let's listen back. I guess, first off, are rain barrels actually worth it? I mean, what could this mean for a homeowner? I think they're absolutely worth it. It helps homeowners get more involved with understanding how water moves throughout our system. It's a really great educational opportunity. And, of course, there's some cost savings associated with rain barrels. It'll depend on who your water provider is, but we estimate, you know, somewhere around 20 bucks a month can be saved on that water bill. Um, There's also 1,200 gallons a year that CSU estimates you can save in water consumption by using a rain barrel. In Wait, it would lessen your consumption? I guess it would lessen your consumption of water from your pipes, is what you're saying. Yeah, okay. Um, Economics. So how much is a rain barrel? 
They definitely vary in cost. I've seen some rain barrels going for just shy of a hundred bucks and as much as five hundred dollars if you want a professional to come out to your property and install the rain barrel for you. Okay, so that will obviously influence how quickly you recoup your investment. How many rain barrels can I have on my property and how much can I collect? I don't know, over the course of a year or something. Yep. The statute allows for up to two rain barrels or up to a total of 110 gallons of rainwater to be gathered on your property and then used on that same property. Okay, 110 gallons in a year? Total. So 110 gallons would be the size of your rain barrel system. And then as it's filling, you're, you're using it down to water your plants and your gardens, even washing your car. So the limit is on the barrels themselves, not on how much I collect over the course of time. Correct. Interesting. And can anyone in any type of building, home, condo, apartment, have rain barrels? No. Currently, how the law was written was to allow single-family residences or multi-family residences with four or fewer units to uh, use rain barrels. Okay. Currently, commercial buildings are not allowed to apply this type of technology at their facility. Or big apartment buildings or big condos, for that matter. Correct. Why? You know, I think that this was such a contentious issue that we have to, you know, kind of walk before we run okay. in terms of um, the, the strategy of rainwater harvesting. And of course, there was concerns in the legislature about potential harm to water rights holders. And so I think we came up with a balanced approach that'll help, again, just kind of create an educational opportunity for homeowners. And, of course, we hope to see the opportunities for rain barrels expanded in years to come. I see. So you think there will be some evolution of this legislation. And for those who may be new to Colorado and don't know that there is a a somewhat Byzantine system of water rights in this state, every drop of water is legally spoken for. This is in part why the compromise over rain barrels was such a big deal and took so long. What can you use this rainwater for? So it's in the barrel, then what? Yeah, you can use it for watering your lawn, for watering your garden, again, washing a car. So uses um, outside of your home. We're not currently going to be allowed to use rainwater for any kind of indoor uses, um, such as flushing toilets, but certainly for um, irrigation and supplementing your irrigation outdoors would be how you'll see people applying their rainwater. Okay, and I gather that that was part of the compromise as well, because if you use it outdoors, the idea would be it could return to the system, to the to the to the the land. Exactly. That's exactly okay. right. What do these systems look like? So it's yeah. not just that you put a barrel out and hope that the rain falls there. Right. Um, they attach to the downspout of a, of a home. So, you know, your gutter across the roof goes to the downspout and you'll actually take the barrel and, and just attach it right there. I've also seen some systems use chains and, and water gardens to gather the water in places that perhaps don't have a downspout easily mm. accessible. Where the water kind of hugs the chain and then lands in the barrel. Yeah. And they can be really beautiful. I'm excited to see how rain barrel technology gets applied across the state. There's so many different systems. I've been thinking of different strategies for using, you know, old keg barrels and and different ways that Coloradoans are going to embrace this technology. Yeah, I don't think of a barrel as usually a beautiful thing. (laughs) I think of it as something to hide. 
Yeah, when you go online and start looking at them, you'll be surprised to see how um, the technology's been developed to make it more attractive for neighborhoods in places that have, you know, concerns about the barrel not being a, a, a nice site on, for the neighborhood. Yeah, an eyesore. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. This was fought out in the legislature. I wonder if the next frontier is to be fought out on HOA boards across the state. Do you think that's a fight that's coming? I hope not. I think that there's always the chance that certain communities will not like the location of a rain barrel. But I think that the amount of public support for this bill was phenomenal. And so I would be surprised to see anything like that. However, you know. Do you sit on an HOA board? (laughs) I do not. Okay. Well, maybe that's why you're answering (laughs) in such an optimistic fashion. Help me understand how you get the barrel, the water out of the barrel. Sure. And, and start watering. I don't understand. Yeah, they actually have a, a spout at the very bottom of them. So one of the best practices that you'll want to consider if you're doing this technology is to actually lift the barrel a little bit to allow for some of that water pressure to then more easily flow out. So oftentimes a watering can will be just put underneath your rain barrel Hmm. spigot and the water comes down and then you can take it to where you need to apply that water, like perhaps in a garden. But you can also attach hoses to these rain barrel systems as well and then run the water directly onto your landscape. At CPRnews.org, there's a photo of a painted rain barrel. Uh, It's got flowers on it. Someone tried to get creative. And I'm told that rain barrels cannot be banned by HOAs, but their placement and how they're painted Correct. can be dictated. Is that right? Yeah. So no HOA board has the authority to say you can't have this if it complies with the law? Right. They just perhaps might not want it in the front yard. I live in a community where I definitely intend on placing mine front and center so that the whole neighborhood can appreciate it and and take a look at it and and ask me questions about it. Mm. So you'll have a rain barrel? Absolutely. Okay. And then I imagine this leads to the ability to study them, because one of the big questions, of course, was whether this would affect the water uh, table ecosystem. And if lots of people start having rain barrels, there will be a more definitive answer to what was a lot of speculation in the debate. Yep. So there is a provision in the bill that acknowledges downstream users' water rights, and it gives the state authority to assess the issue and intervene if if necessary. So if we were to find that there's harm to downstream users during particularly dry years, the state of Colorado could potentially rethink its position on rain barrels. Though I don't think that that will be the case. I think there's been plenty of research done, especially by Colorado State University and, and other universities, to show that they're really isn't much impact to delaying the flow of water into the system. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Patty Mason is executive director of the Colorado U.S. Green Building Council. You can find her six tips for using rain barrels well at cprnews.org. No pun intended with the well there. Okay, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's raining so hard Look like it's gonna rain all night It's the 70th anniversary of the Nuremberg Trials when Nazi leaders were prosecuted for their roles in World War II. With me now is Daniel Goldberg, associate professor at CU's Anschutz Medical Campus. He's a historian and researcher in law and bioethics. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Most people think of the trials in terms of war criminals like Joseph Goebbels, the second in command to Adolf Hitler. But the focus of your program this week as part of CU's Holocaust Remembrance Week is sort of a lesser known trial taking place as part of the tribunal. What was it? Um, This is the uh, 70th anniversary of the Nuremberg Doctors Trials, which was one of a series, I believe there were 10 to 12 ancillary trials that was conducted after the main tribunals. And so these were uh, 23 German physicians. German physicians who were absolutely part of executing Hitler's vision. Yes. And what types of experiments did they conduct that made them subject to this tribunal? Um, Well, the tribunal did focus on their experiments. What's interesting, uh, Ryan, is that's been criticized because German physicians were widely involved in the machinery of the Third Reich beyond experimentation. Uh The experiments that were uh, the subject of the trial, though, were um, experiments that were really quite horrible, and that's why the trial focused on them. The details of them were just unreal, um, subjecting prisoners and concentration camp inmates to uh, hypothermia experiments, to high-altitude experiments, to determine uh, the limits of endurance, um, uh, deliberately creating wounds, open wounds, to determine uh, whether infections could be, uh, would progress past the point of no return, those kinds of things. Honestly, a lot of them sound like torture. Like torture or just plain art torture, high altitude experiments. What what did those look like? Um, uh, you know, I'm not 100 percent familiar. I'm not 100. I don't recall the exact details, but but basically determining uh, whether uh, sort of the the limits of endurance at, at what kinds of altitudes without oxygen that could be added um, would people pass out, uh, experience brain damage, or or die. The the point you made at the beginning of the conversation there was it, it wasn't just a question of the experiments, but that the architecture of the camps in many ways relied on medical input. Can, can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, so doctors as a profession joined the Nazi party in, in proportions that outraced other professions. So, for example, lawyers, only about 20 percent of German lawyers were members of the Nazi party. Uh, Over 50% of doctors were actually members of the Nazi party, and they were really integral to the machinery of the Third Reich well before war actually broke out. And so this was actually not what was really going on in the doctors' trials, unfortunately. And as important as these trials were, uh, they have been criticized for their unrelenting focus on the experimentation rather than what German physicians did in the service of the Third Reich even before the war broke out. And what would that have been? What would that early service have looked like? Um, well, the the most famous or notorious is probably a better word, Ryan. The most notorious would be um, the actions of German physicians against German citizens. So prior to the, the actual final solution, the Holocaust, the attempt to exterminate Jews, about um, estimates are, we're not clear, but at, uh, probably uh, about 400 to 500,000 disabled Germans were, um, the, the euphemism would be euthanized. The, the better way of putting it, they were murdered actually, uh, in gas chambers in Germany, many of which were in Berlin and in other kinds of places. And German physicians were instrumental in the architecture of this process in carrying it out as well. I see. Some of the doctors involved tried to justify their work in any number of ways. Uh, Why don't we listen to some news coverage and testimony? This comes to us from the Robert H. Jackson Center. Jackson was the, the prosecutor during the trials. Dr. Hertha Oberhäuser was a young and attractive woman in 1946. She was accused of having tortured dozens of concentration camp inmates. 
of having artificially infected wounds, of having administered lethal injection. And in your affidavit, you admit that you gave five or six lethal injections. Is that correct? Nine. Well, you gave injections, and after such injections, the persons died, did they not? So what she said there is that the injections referred to were only made to put patients who were in agony out of their misery. She's one of 16 doctors found guilty in these trials. She served five years of a 20-year sentence. Seven of the doctors were executed. What were some of the other defenses that doctors used to justify this behavior? There were two main legal defenses that the doctors used. Uh, The first line of defense was that they claimed that there was no source of international law by which they could be tried and judged, that there was no treaty or law that would govern their behavior. And second, they... I guess the idea being it can't be wrong if there's not a law to say so? What they said, well, they didn't, they didn't claim that it was ethically right. There's a, right? There's a difference between laws Legal and ethics, and, right? right? But they said that legally they could not be held legally accountable in the absence of a governing body of law that, by which they could be tried. Okay, almost a jurisdictional question. And the second argument? Uh, the second argument they made is actually by the standards of research that the allies were participating in as well. So the U.S., Britain, France, that what they were doing was not all that different from what the allies had been doing as well. And so it was really sort of standard of practice. Did they have a point in that argument? Uh, Yes, they did, Um, unfortunately. Uh, Actually, both of those arguments were um, at least facially valid, right? Uh, To the second one, which sounds like what you're asking about, Ryan. To the second one, um, you know, I I think it would be difficult to charge the allies with really torturing uh, prisoners of war the way that some of the German medical experiments uh, happened under the Third Reich. However, claiming uh, that um, these experiments were going on without the consent, that human experimentation was going on without participant consent uh, was quite frankly, true. I mean, wasn't that the story of the Tuskegee syphilis experiments on African-Americans? Yes. And that is widely known by historians and bioethicists and, and lawyers as, as sort of one of the, the grotesque ironies of the Nuremberg trials was um, the, 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 the policies that were created were done so to impose liability on the German doctors. They were seen as something that applied to these people and not to anyone else. And in the ensuing decades, um, human subjects researchers in the U.S., uh, human subjects abuses in the U.S. like Tuskegee uh, happened and were not to be honest with you, as uncommon as we'd like to hope they would have been. Will you remind listeners what happened in that program, just briefly, the Tuskegee program here on, on American soil? Um, Tuskegee, the Tuskegee, the, the, the study for the treatment of, uh, study for untreated syphilis, basically it began just as a natural history experiment. They wanted to see what would happen. And this began in 1937. But uh, once antibiotics were uh, invented and created that would treat syphilis, uh, these antibiotics were not offered to people who were enrolled in the Tuskegee trial. These were all black men. Uh, and not only that, But when people actually, when participants tried to actually get access to the antibiotics, they were actively obstructed from doing so by members of the trial for decades. Uh, And this only came to light when journalists discovered it uh, in the early 1970s. Out of the uh, tribunal comes the Nuremberg Code, right? 
Explain what that is and its importance in medical ethics and, you know, perhaps to budding doctors today. The Nuremberg Code was actually, uh, I would refer to it as, as the document, the code that was created to impose liability on the German physicians. It was a code that would express uh, principles for the ethical conduct of human subjects research, of human participants research. Okay. And how does it reverberate today? It's still considered one of the guiding documents of bioethics, of medical ethics in general, and one of the keystones of research ethics around the world. What are a few of its uh, touchstones? Uh, it's most uh, the, the core principle and the one that still guides, I think, modern research ethics today is is that the the consent of the subject is an absolute moral prerequisite for any kind of human participants' research to go on. Is there any gray area though today? Places where that is in question. There isn't a gray area as to whether or not consent is required. Okay. But, but in its execution. <laughs> yes, there is actually lots of gray area on whether consent is required. So, for example, there's why there is not widespread. There is some disagreement on whether or not it is possible for people in some kinds of social conditions to actually give their consent. So, for example, prisoners. Um, you know, in the 1960s, about 90% of phase one clinical trials were conducted on prisoners. And there's a much lower percentage of that today, in part because people are not convinced that it is actually possible for incarcerated people to give meaningful informed consent. That is to say, even if you seek consent, what is the value of that consent given the population? That's correct. Fascinating. Any other places where you think the line's are blurred or where there are ethical questions raised that might echo uh, the questions of Nuremberg? Uh, one of the, the most difficult uh, issues is doing, and this does echo Nuremberg, is doing research on vulnerable populations, right? So which sometimes is actually pretty important. We don't have to think of uh, Nazi experiments to, to, to view this. So for example, doing research on the effects of pharmaceutical products on children and pregnant women is actually quite important if we're going to you know, prescribe drugs to children and pregnant women. And yet, um, it's very difficult to run clinical trials on children and pregnant women uh, because they're deemed, I think, quite appropriately vulnerable populations. And the, risk, the, the risks of doing so are often deemed to outweigh any benefit to society we could get from gaining more information. Uh. Is it possible that, I don't know, drug companies or researchers consent shop? <laughs> that is, if they have a harder time finding consent among uh, a wealthier, more educated community, might they go abroad to one that, I don't know, might benefit from the, the payment uh, uh, associated with being a part of a research project or something like that? Absolutely. Most clinical trials in the world, at least for pharmaceutical and biotechnology biotech products, are actually not conducted in the United States. They are mostly they're conducted in the developing world, um, in, in the global south. And so there are a lot of ethical controversies about whether and when this is appropriate, uh, what kinds of consent need to be obtained, and whether or not the participants in this research are entitled to the benefit to get to any kind of benefits for lending their bodies to these kinds of endeavors, especially because the products that will result will usually be sold uh, to wealthy countries, not in those places. Is there a board governing these questions? So there are institutional review boards, which was created uh, in the mid-1970s, partly as a result of the Tuskegee experiments. Huh. And these are required by law. Any kind of human subjects research has to obtain IRB approval, including research that's done 
in developing countries if it involves developed country researchers and teams. And yet questions persist about this system. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. That is Daniel Goldberg. He's a historian and researcher in law and bioethics at CU's Anschutz Medical Campus. He'll present on the Nuremberg Doctor Trials as part of CU's Holocaust Remembrance Week. There's a link to the events at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. He's a big name in contemporary art, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and there is still time to catch an exhibition in Denver that sheds light on his life and career. Basquiat's best known for his street graffiti and large-scale paintings. But as CPR arts reporter Corey Jones explains, he also used an apartment as his canvas. Most of the pieces on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver belong to Alexis Adler. And when she takes my call, she's just climbed the stairs to her apartment. Hold on. Yeah, no worries. Situate myself here. Adler lives in a sixth-floor apartment in New York City's East Village. This is the same place Adler shared with Jean-Michel Basquiat nearly 40 years ago. She was a budding biologist fresh out of college. He was a 19-year-old promising artist. Adler says it was a busy and creative period for Basquiat, her boyfriend at the time. He'd stay up all night working on different ideas. We didn't have canvases, but we had walls and floors and stuff that he'd bring up from the street and paper. This exhibition in Denver captures an intimate look at the artists during their brief time together. Adler's collection includes pages filled with Basquiat's writings and drawings, as well as photographs she took of him. It's a dream come true for me because I really wanted to share this with people. The exhibition begins in a small gallery. That's Nora Burnett Abrams. She's the curator at MCA Denver. And we're surrounded by walls covered in graffiti with a variety of colors and shapes and symbols and text. The wallpaper shows what it actually looked like inside the rundown building where Basquiat and Adler called home. Graffiti covered the walls and stairwells. That's how Basquiat got his start. He'd earned an underground following as part of a street art collaborative called SAMO. Basquiat often used black spray paint to write words and phrases in a signature all-caps font. And he was kind of legendary in the neighborhood. That early anonymity Basquiat had with SAMO didn't last long. Abrams says Basquiat's meteoric rise helped turn him into the mythic figure we know today. Making wildly large amounts of money at becoming an international art star, really, collaborating with Andy Warhol, and then his star burnt out. Jean-Michel Basquiat died of a heroin overdose in 1988. He was 27. The artist's death has spawned a mystique. There are documentaries and even a Hollywood movie about Basquiat. And last year, one of his paintings sold for more than $57 million. This exhibition at MCA Denver captures the time between his teenage years and his superstardom. It's work that's never been shown in public. It's called Basquiat before Basquiat. We don't know that he's going to become this amazing painter. We just know that he was always making. He was always curious. There are actual objects Basquiat painted on, like a Pepto-Bismol bottle. Then there are photos of other things he turned into abstract pieces of art 
like a refrigerator with the words grape jelly near a handprint and a paint smear. He's painting on a found television set. This is a painting that he made on the wall of his bedroom. So everything was ripe for him. In another room, you'll find clothing he would paint on and then later sell. The way he earned his share of the rent, which at the time was $80 a month, was by making these sweatshirts and t-shirts and postcards that he would then sell on the street. Throughout the exhibition, you see how Basquiat played with different motifs, from words to symbols. Some of these are now signature elements in his work. You see these zigzag lines, and those will become the top of a crown. They recur as a mouth or as hair. There's a raw quality to Basquiat's art that many describe as childlike, but Abrams says don't let that fool you. He was sifting and sorting through any material that he could find, whether it's popular culture, advertising, comic books, the history of art, and science textbooks. Remember, Alexis Adler studied science in college, so some of Basquiat's art reflects this in the form of charts and graphs. Adler says her collection serves as a snapshot of when they lived together. It's a strange and wonderful place to be in, but Here I am. I found myself sharing my world, my life, and the life we shared together. Adler says her apartment was Basquiat's first permanent address after he ran away from home. This apartment was his laboratory, and Adler hopes to see Basquiat's creative experiments travel to other museums nationwide. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. Now let's hear from someone else who knew Jean-Michel Basquiat, Denver photographer Mark Sink. Corey Jones visited Sink's home to see mementos and photographs. Mark, let's start with this image here. It seems very powerful. Basquiat is in the middle of the frame. He has a kind of distant gaze and, uh, of course, some of his distinctive writings behind him on the wall. This was a large painting at the French Pacomian Gallery in New York. I was there to photograph his work and he came up and I happened to have my big old view camera out and got a picture of him, he picked this in particular to stand in front of the words behind a man dies was not significant until he died a couple weeks later. What do you remember about Basquiat from the time when you took this image? It was a difficult time when later on in his life he was under great pressure by art dealers. He's pulled many directions. His work was becoming extremely valuable then. So it was that rising star of someone becoming a superstar and how you deal with that with your friends. And I saw a lot of that frustration and his struggle with drugs. And he had just been on a a loop of getting better out in Hawaii. And we were all celebrating. And his new show looked great. And it really was that kind of moment at the peak of his career. Jean-Michel Basquiat passed away of a heroin overdose. Uh, He was 27 years old. That happened just a a couple weeks after you took this photo. What went through your head when you found out that Basquiat died? It was a stunning shock. The same thing when Warhol passed away. It was just such a gigantic hole. Um, He was just such a free spirit. Let's go back to the beginning of your time with him. How did you meet Basquiat? I was with my friend Robert Hawkins, a painter and good friend of his. 
We rolled out the door of a cafe. It was a late night, I gather. It was very late, two or three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, this was 1981. And my friend said, John, hey. And I had no idea who he was. And uh, You just saw him standing there outside. He was standing next to a limousine. And uh, we went into the studio there. And I just started asking, said, oh, you're a painter. And he... Yeah, and I started pulling one out of the racks, and there I started to realize, you're, wait, you're, uh, uh, you had seen his works before. I I had seen his work before and recognized, you know, the crowns and the kind of imagery. So at that point, I was drunk and a dumb Denver kid, and I said, will you paint me something? And uh, Jean-Michel said, sure. And he grabbed a red paintbrush sitting in a can of red paint and drew me a big red scorpion and crossed it out and wrote Scorpio and then took that piece of paper because it was dripping and the canvas we were looking at he used it to stamp prints of the scorpion down across the canvas which I've been looking for that canvas through my career he must have painted over it I've mm. yet to come across it and what happened to the uh, the print that he painted for you oh I think it probably sold for $30,000 or something. Mm. That I... mm. <laughs> so what kind of relationship did you have with him after that? What were your interactions like? I was always very jealous of him because he had the table full of beautiful girls and he was, you know, could get the table in the restaurant just in a second when he walked in the door. And he was always very nice to me. I shot a lot of his work on the side from his main paintings. He drove me a little nuts at his studio Well photographing him he always would change him in the middle climb around on the piece soiling his clothes up and things and you know a lot of times there's just lots of drugs quite a bit kind of shocking uh, that someone coming that okay i'm not here you know and they're there to pay cash (laughs) for a piece you know like hundreds of thousand dollars in cash essentially under the table yeah What else do you have in your home? What other mementos of Basquiat? In general, I just have lots of scraps and pieces. Wherever he sat, he would scribble something out. Uh, I have hundreds and hundreds of uh, these large format transparencies of his work that I photographed in his studio. Can you pull out a couple and and show us and, and tell us what stands out to you about them? Well, this one that's like a pack of cards just came out um there's his golden crown one of his the back of the neck this this is a huge piece it's about six feet high by that's probably 25 feet wide um big piece with gold in the middle uh spine a ladder going up the spine to the crown the hand and arm with the red blood-like veins coming around very, very powerful piece. And, of course, he always puts his copyright signals <laughs> yeah, on yeah. there. Um, this is when he was working with uh, Andy Warhol, where they collaborated, which was not a match made in heaven. Um, they both had, you know, monster egos, and they both believed each other was helping each other's career. John michel thought he was helping Andy's career and vice versa. They wanted credit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but... These are the very typical notebooks that he used, these black and white composition books. 
I probably photographed 30 of these. Um, but these were very typical of his poems and words. A lot of these these words are what you would come up across uh, when he was writing out in the streets. You know, these words, lover equals liar. There's, you know, a whole school of people that, you know, work in the power of the word. And he is one of them that were very catching and telling about his life and the culture. That is Denver photographer Mark Sink speaking with my colleague Corey Jones about the late contemporary artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. The exhibition of Basquiat's work wraps up May 14th at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.